imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Hello, I'm Sean Lee Bhattacharya. Thanks for joining us today at a big time to find a bigger tent. Um, I'm a playwright and activist and secretary and London regional rep on Momentum's National Coordinating Group. At the 2019 general election, the Conservative Party achieved 43.6% of the popular vote, the highest percentage of any party since 1979. This electoral coalition has been decades in the making. The Conservatives have increased their share of the vote in every election since 2005. In contrast, Labour's vote share declined considerably between 1997 and 2015. Although Labour's surge at the 2017 general election seemed to point to the possibility of building a social majority for radical socio-economic reforms, the result in December revealed the fragility of Labour's electoral coalition. How do we build beyond the 10 million people who voted for Corbyn while also winning the 120 seats Labour require for a working majority? What groups does Labour need to win? What are the tensions between these different groups and what politics will it take to unite them? How do we ensure the gains we've made aren't jettisoned when the need for a new social contract is starker than ever in the face of this devastatingly mishandled pandemic? At Momentum, we've been grappling with the questions of our role post-Corbyn. As part of the new national coordinating group, we were elected on a platform of reorientation towards grassroots campaigning and community and workplace organising, as well as building the socialist left within the Labour Party in a bid to sustain and grow a broad-based movement. Today, I'm joined by a great panel of speakers to discuss how we can build a bigger tent. But before we begin, we have a few rules of engagement. We want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces and for everyone's voices to be heard. So please bear this in mind when engaging with chat or comment boxes during sessions. Please don't use inappropriate, rude or unkind language and please don't spam. Participants who violate these principles may be prevented from further posting in the chat and comment boxes. In this session, we'll be using a live transcription service called Otter. Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript as a separate window. The link will be shared in the chat box by a tech volunteer. If you're having difficulties, please message the top tech volunteer on the chat. The World Transformed is free for all, but it's only made possible by the contributions of our supporters. If you're able to, please consider supporting us at theworldtransformed.org forward slash support to help us sustain our work all year round. So without further ado, let's go on to our fabulous panel today. Today we've got speaking Paul Mason, who's a journalist, filmmaking, filmmaker and author of Clear Bright Future, Radical Defence of the Human Being. Also Hazel Nolan, who's a GMB Scotland organiser. Prior to working for GMB, Hazel was a national organiser for Hope Not Hate. While working for GMB Scotland, Hazel led on the successful Glasgow Equal Pay campaign and the worker occupation battle for BIFAB. Andrew Murray is Chief of Staff of Unite, advisor to Jeremy Corbyn and author of The Fall and Rise of the British Left. We're now going to hear from each of our speakers and then we'll have a discussion and you'll have a chance to ask any questions. 
do post questions in the chat and our volunteers will collect them. Thanks a lot. Over to you, Paul. Well, thanks for that. And, uh, and congratulations to TWT for what's been a fantastic uh, festival of ideas so far. Um, I think let's start from what are we trying to achieve? For me, what we're trying to achieve is what I call a left government. That is a government that breaks with the neoliberal economic model that decarbonizes the economy over two terms, if possible, so you get to zero net carbon in 10 years in power and radically redistributes political power. So that's what I think uh, we should be trying to achieve. Uh, there's lots of other things you can bolt onto it, but I think that's the, the basic. Now, for me, I think that's possible. One of the byproducts of ach achieving a left government would be a revived space for civil society activism, for trade unionism, for struggles of communities, which, as we know, are being completely crushed by the relentless relentlessness, I suppose, of, of the neoliberal uh, crisis and regime. But as with my political hero, uh, Antonio Gramsci, uh, we have to start from a rigorous assessment of the political dynamics of now, what Gramsci called the conjuncture. And I think there are two facts that that sort of stand in our way for getting the kind of government that we want. Um, one, there is a big, and I, and I think unfortunately it's even now growing socially conservative movement among especially older white English and Welsh people in ex-industrial communities. That is a big thing. Bigger than that is that I think Scotland is on a trajectory for leaving the UK. Uh, when I covered the 2014 referendum, I met 16-year-old uh, school students who said things like to me like, um, I'm for independence, even though I support the wrong football team. That is, they were Rangers fans. And they were surrounded by not just unionists, but loyalists, but they were still pro-independence. I think all the polling is moving towards that. Now, whether we find ourselves inside a, a non-UK, so just England and Wales and, and Northern Ireland, whatever that would feel like, or whether Scotland stays and we've got to, got to uh, face up to and defeat and, and if possible fragment this reactionary movement, um, it may be, and this is the problem, it may be we, we have to settle for something less than a left-wing Labour government. That is for something that simply defeats and, and resists authoritarian uh, conservatism plus fascism. So I think, however, it is possible that we, that we get a left government. And I think the way to it is, first of all, understanding that what's changed. I think after 2010, there was this possibility opened up for, again, what Gramsci called a war of manoeuvre. So the, the elite embrace austerity, um, massive austerity, and this really shatters the whole centre-left social democracy. And whether it's like what we did, we all joined, or many people joined Labour, or, for example, if you look at Syriza, which became a hybrid party between the far left and the social democracy, or a former alliance like the Bloco in, in, uh, in Portugal and the, and the Socialist Party, what opened up was the possibility of a big anti-austerity struggle creating a left government. I think what we're up against now is something new. These are not authoritarian nationalist neoliberals have a different project. They are pr not primarily about austerity. It's about 
a national form of neoliberalism uh, where they break up the global system. So they will borrow money like Trump and they will print money like Trump to fuel what they need to do. Uh, they won't uh, provide public services, but the imperative of austerity is for now not there. Um, now, the other obstacle, so the other change that we've got to take account of, I think, um, however you read the 2019 election result, a lot of the pollsters say it was coming over 10 years. It's not just Brexit. It's not just Ed Miliband or Corbyn. It's, it's, it's a 10 plus year divergence of working class experience between, you know, my favorite contrast, because I do this journey regularly, is from Euston Station to Wigan Station. It takes two hours, less than two hours sometimes. Uh, so from, from Camden to Wigan, it's a completely different uh, different reality. When you get a train in Wigan, you, the most obvious thing is there's no money in the town. There's no higher education either. Uh, in Lee, where I come from, which part of Wigan, there's no post-16 education in the town. Uh, the demographic structure is completely different. Now, Camden is a working class borough. Camden is poorer than Wigan, just uh, on the government's measures. But Wigan's and places like it are suffering so much worse. Now, this is the basis for what Starmer's chief of staff, of chief of policy, Claire Ainsley, calls the difference between the new and traditional working class. As labels, I don't like new versus traditional working class. I believe there's only one working class, but we have to acknowledge that the experience is divergent. I think what has the Labour leadership decided to do to try and solve this problem? This is not necessarily my solution, but I think we, the left, have to map on what we are doing to what Starmer, etc., have decided to do. It is this. If you look at... Um, Claire's basic sort of solution to this it is try and focus on the values that both, as it were, sides of the culture war within the working class uh, share. Uh, and these are listed as, quote, family, fairness, hard work and decency. Now, a lot of us on the radical left, on the socially liberal side of the left, it, when we look at those words, some of them don't resonate very well with us. Um, but I think um, if we don't look at them as values, but we look at them as a collective survival mechanism, you know, if there's no society, you fall back on family. If you can't struggle collectively, at least you can struggle individually for a fair deal at work. Hard work, I think, is what people mean by, you know, they don't like people who don't work like the elite. And as for decency, I mean, I think, you know, everybody who's experienced those that collapse under neoliberalism of solidarity was you saw my saw my father's generation try to just maintain what they could when they were being made to you know eat dirt uh, in the labor exchange during the thatcher era um what we've got to do i think is move and here's where i think we differ from what lotto and what the soft left are doing at the moment in labor um so, so I think what they, they see is we can bring a solution based on these values. It's classic Fabianism. It's from above. You hear a lot of talk uh, about the foundational economy, uh, about you know, decent work. Personally, I, I, my long-term aim is for a post-work uh, economy. And I think they're going to try and integrate the decarbonisation offer into a wider social offer rather than package it as a Green New Deal. Now, whether or not we like all that, that is what I think they're going to do. 
the different emphasis I think the left can bring, and I will, I will wind up here, is that I think, first of all, we, we are not just about surviving under, under neoliberalism. We're about abolishing neoliberalism, attacking capitalism. So I want to go into those struggles around family, fairness, hard work, decency, etc., the struggles at work, the struggles in communities, and turn them into a, from survival to resistance. I think that's what the left strategy should be. I think that strategy can be done with inside the party. Above all, because the party is a very important vehicle for bringing these two separate experiences of the of the working class together into one entity. There's very very few other things. Trade unions a bit, but you know community campaigns differ very greatly from places like Wigan to Camden. So the party can be the place where people meet. And what can what I, what can we say to people? I think it is. There are two there are two watchwords that I think we can bring that I that, that I think the center left and the soft left don't really get. One is I think what links the struggles of people in Camden and Wigan is they're struggling against against powerlessness, the absence of power in their lives. And if they've got nothing else in common, you can say to them, look, the absence of power in your life is what you actually share. And here as a party, we're going to try and empower you so that you can fight for your own uh, things. The second one is social justice. Social justice is a very deeply embedded uh, framework in, in both these kind of communities that I think we can give a content to. To finish, I've seen Glenn Beck in America spend hours trying to tell people that social justice is communism. And the reason the far right do this is because they know that even amongst communities that are very susceptible to their propaganda, you know, the classic small town mid-American uh, place that has its mirror here in Britain. Um, things like Catholic social teaching, the social teaching of Islam, uh, the social teaching of, of, of basically liberal society tells people that there should be social justice. So I think that that is a powerful frame for us. But I'll finish by saying I don't think anything about what we need have to do is going to be easy. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Paul. Um, so we'll hear from Hazel Nolan now, GMB Scotland organiser, how to build a bigger tent. Um, so Paul's suggesting that Labour can offer an alternative model of empowerment and social justice to ordinary people. Do you think that's possible, Hazel? I think it has to be possible. Um, and if it's not, then I don't think we, we stand a chance, quite frankly. Um, I'm, I'm not Scottish, as uh, you might have guessed from my accent, but um, I have been living here since 2015. And I just wanted to pick up to start with on some of the comments that Paul made about Scotland, because what happened in, in 2014, from, from my experience and my reflections on it, is that you had a group of people who wanted social change. And we lost the ability to convince them that Labour was the vehicle to deliver that. They wanted, they, the SNP, what they did successfully is they convinced people that independence was the route to get there. And I think the Labour Party up here made a, a tragic and long, like a consequential mistake in that we started to tell people, you know, actually it's not possible. These things, these problems aren't possible. You know, we should have spent that time on that platform going around saying this vision that the SNP are painting of a better Scotland is something that you do deserve and you can have. And the way to get there is to vote for a Labour government. But instead, we spent too long telling them 
things like, oh, well, actually, it's not so bad here. Um, and we ran a negative campaign. And we've long-term consequences of that. Um, the reality of where we need to be, I think, is that, yeah, we need to build a coalition. Um, we need to meet people where they are. And, and everyone in the movement, in the labor movement, needs to play their part. So on the issue of building coalitions, yes, we need, we need a coalition of the working class. Um, I feel very similar to what Paul said in that I don't like to create differences, but the reality is people do have different lived experiences. And if we look back at 2017 and the election result there, you know, we did really, really well in some areas. We ran a great campaign. Um, but what we needed to do was we needed to not only just win Canterbury and Kensington, we also needed to win Mansfield. And we didn't spend enough time after 2017 focusing on why did we lose Mansfield instead of just why did we win Kensington and, and Canterbury. Um, and I think the difference in why we win some areas and lose some does come down to people's lived experiences. Because if you're poor in a metropolitan area like London, and I lived in London for five years before I moved up to Scotland, you're angry. It makes you angry because you can see the wealth in the country every day. It is absolutely in your face. I actually sometimes go back to London. I, it makes me feel uncomfortable because you see the wealth. It's all around you and you have no access to it. But if you live in somewhere like Mansfield or in an area of uh, deindustrialization in the UK, which is most of our heartlands, um, you don't get angry because there's no wealth in your community. What there is, is there's a local factory closing down. And your children are given the option of, you know, either moving down somewhere like London or or Manchester or moving away to a big city or they get a job maybe working in, in a call centre. Um, and I think we don't have enough appreciation or we didn't show enough appreciation for the emotional reaction that, that causes in people. You know, when I introduce myself, I say, hi, I'm Hazel Nolan. I'm a trade unionist. It's, it's not just a thing that I do. It's a part of who I am. And so these communities are just losing losing jobs. It's not just that they're they're um, out of pocket. It's that they're losing their sense of identity and to a large extent their sense of purpose. And and that emotional reaction and that difference that does capture uh, a different consequence. And I think that what it did is the Tories they understood that and they gave a message that actually offered hope. I think we need to realize that in the in the states. Um, you know, make America great again. That was a slogan that that gave a lot of people a lot of hope. Um, Brexit, take back control. That was a message of hope to those communities. So, what was our message of hope to people? Um, I think you know, electorally, we're entering a stage where baby boomers, for example, for the first time, don't longer have a sole block vote on the in in voting in the elections. Right? Like before, up until recently, if you appealed to baby boomers, you either won or lost the election. Um, and that's starting to change. And so it is important that Labour reaches out to younger people. Um, but we need to focus more on how do we build that coalition? And I think areas like care are going to be extremely important in the future because that's something that elderly voters um, are going to need more of. You know, there's people who are in that age group who are getting stuck in a care trap because they are one, going to need care for themselves, their elderly parents are in, the, in, in care, or two, they're also having to compensate for for childcare for their for the younger children as well. You know, we can match that, that need for care and come up with collectivized solutions to those problems, um, such as talking about, you know, good quality in care, but, and, and 
COVID-19 also presents loads of opportunities for us to do this as well. But I mean, Labour's offer at the moment on, on good paid care jobs is is still lower than what you would earn in, in little. And I think that is a, that's a huge problem. And the other thing is that we need to meet people where they are. You know, um, I was very excited about the idea of a, a Green New Deal. That was our flagship uh, policy when it came to the last election. But we only focused, we focused too narrowly on one aspect of that. And that was about the environmental crisis. And I am absolutely not here to deny that we have an environmental crisis, we 100% do. But we also have a jobs crisis. And we are, we didn't talk enough about that aspect of that policy. Um, and to give you an example of that, you know, in, in Scotland in 2010, we were promised that Scotland would be the Saudi Arabia of uh, renewables jobs. And 10 years later, it turns out that Saudi Arabia is the Saudi Arabia of renewables jobs because we are losing contracts, contract after contract to uh, yards in China and the, and, and the UAE and, and other Middle Eastern countries when it comes to fabrication work. And that's affecting loads of GMB members and Unite members. Um, we were promised 20,000 jobs in the renewable sector. And the reality is there's less than a thousand. It's not just on, on construction. It's, you know, this is also affecting CS Wind. It's affecting our members, it's like, you know, in Alexander Dennis as well. We talk about building renewable uh, public transport models. The, the reality is it's just absolutely not happening. And we're not doing enough to call out the jobs aspect of that. And that's where our members are. You know, we ended up occupying uh, the yards at BIFAP in 2017, along with Unite, at the same time that Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister, was at a conference in Bonn on, on renewables. I mean, the irony of that is dark. And if Labour wants to win, we have to accept that reality, you know, um, and we have to talk about those things, talk about jobs for people, good paying jobs, because, you know, I think Paul mentioned the issue of fairness. That is what a lot of people are looking for. They're just looking for a fair crack of the whip and they don't have it. And we, we're not talking about that at all. Um, and that that reality is about meeting voters where they are. And you know, in 2017, we ran a really good campaign. We ran an emotional campaign, um, and it, we had a slogan for hope. But instead of building on that, we we didn't. In 2019, our campaign slogan was was very vacuous and empty. You know, real change. Like, what does that mean? It didn't mean you know anything for people. You talk about for the many, not the few. I know I know what that means. Um, and to give an example of why that's so important, you know, when we had the whole immigration debate in the UK, um, do people remember that photograph of that little boy that washed up on that beach? Because I remember it. And I remember the, the whole commentary at the time just kind of stopped just for a few moments because that tapped into something in people. And then again, you know, we, we still have really negative and the British press is terrible at this uh, debate about immigration. But that personal touch that that resonated with people for a moment, and I, and that's one of the most powerful things that we have in the labour movement and the labour party, um, is that connection, is that sense of community, are those really deep rooted rooted feelings that people have, and we spend so long in most debates uh, and in most election campaigns talking nonstop instead about you know statistics and figures that don't resonate with people whatsoever, and and actually the irony is that it is the right who talk about values. And I do think that that is a, an important thing that we need to do. You know, we need to meet people where they are with that. And absolutely everyone needs to play their part. And I think the reality is that, you know, in terms of how trade unions relate to the Labour Party, well, we have our part to play there as well, because 
the Labour Party could do a lot better out of us if we could uh, convince all of our members to vote Labour instead of just handing over checks when it comes to election time. But the reality is that the trade union movement as well needs to re-establish a lot of our links with members in the shop floor because you need to earn the right to talk to workers firstly before we can earn the right to tell them how to vote in elections. And the reality is that in a lot of areas, we're not doing that as well as we should be. Um, so I think those are my, my main comments and, and observations. Um, is that, yeah, we need to talk to people where they are and we do need to build coalitions and realise that people's experiences are different and how do we resonate and build on that? Because there's nothing more powerful than than talking about that. And when we ran the BIFAB campaign, I asked all the workers, what does this mean for you? Because I knew they were going to get swept under a tide of people talking about the statistics, the complexities of the situation and how much the um, money was involved in the project and everything else. And and I don't want to get their emotional stories out. And I asked one guy, I said to him, what does this place being open mean for you? And he said, well, I'm a scaffolder and I've had to travel all over the UK and all over the world trying to get work. And sometimes I'm away from my family for weeks and months on end. And BIFAB being open means that I get to tuck my seven-year-old kid into bed every night. And I remember when we won that campaign and I messaged the members and I messaged the reps and said, you know, we've won. I wanted them to hear it from us instead of hearing it on the airwaves. And uh, they said to me, I hope, well, I hope you're celebrating. And I said, yeah, of course I am. I'm, I'm, I'm selling myself with myself in the pub and a few of the other organizers uh, celebrating the fact that we'd won the campaign. And one of our, one of the guys wrote back to me and said, this is me celebrating. And he was talking his seven-year-old kid into bed. And I think that's powerful. And I think that we need to take that, that emotional reaction that people feel and, and respond to that and, and listen to that and put that for, forefront. You know, this week, there was a three billion pound project for offshore wind in Scotland and not a single job is going to be created on the back of it in Scotland in fabrication because all the contracts were awarded abroad. And we need to talk about that and we need to talk about jobs and we need to talk about communities. And I think that's the way that we can unite and that we need to win Mansfield and we need to win Kensington if we want to win a general election. Thanks. That's great. Thanks, Hazel. Um, I just want to remind everyone, if you've got any comments or particularly any questions for our brilliant speakers today, please put them in the chat and we will be able to get to some of those later. So, um, yeah, if anything is resonating with you, you want to bring anything up, then please do that. Um, so next we've got Andrew Murray. Um, so, yeah, it'd be great to hear from you, Andrew. So Hazel's sort of putting forward this uh, question. Why are Labour values not resonating with the public and why didn't that happen in 2019 when it did in 2017? It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. And thanks to the World Transformed for um, organising this uh, event today. And let me say I really agree, I think, with uh, everything that Paul and Hazel have already uh, said. Now, I think, Shanali, uh, uh, you perhaps slightly undersold the Tory achievement in saying they'd increased their vote from 2005. I think it is the case. They've increased their share of the vote in every election since the sort of low point of 1997. Uh, they've gone over that period from around 28, 29% to 44% in terms of share of the vote. Uh, that's taken them six elections. Our objective now has to be to try and get to 44% from 32% between in one election, really, in a period of, um, of four years. So it's a formidable challenge to get to that sort of 
you know, numbers that don't just win you an election, but give you a real mandate to make changes. But I think 2017 did show that it's not unreachable because that represented a 10% increase in Labour share of the vote relative to 2015, just two years earlier. Now, it's true that the only elections that really matter are the last one and the next one. Uh, but nevertheless, I think 2017 shouldn't be written out of our historical recollection because it's we did get over 40% of the vote, and that's only the third time the Labour Party's done that since 1970. Before 1970, win or lose, Labour always got more than 40% of the vote since the Second World War. Only happened three times since Blair's first two elections and 2017. And if one thinks about how that was achieved, uh, and it, it was an achievement in the sense we won Canterbury, we won Kensington, and in most red wall seats, so-called red wall seats, we um, had the best vote we've had uh, this century in terms of absolute numbers, although there was already a tightening as what I think Paul rightly describes as a social conservatism in many of those seats started to mean UKIP votes going back to the Tories and so majorities were getting tighter. But I think one thing which I think is relevant to our immediate prospects with Labour now is that in that campaign there was something that was the same as there was in 1964 when Wilson was elected and 1997 when Blair was first uh, elected and I think probably in 1945 too. There was an air of political excitement around the Labour a campaign. There was a vision of things changing that could catch up people coming at it from different perspectives somewhat in different parts of the country behind a program for change that was you know radical enough to make a difference but credible enough to be uh, plausible. Uh, and uh, that that air of excitement is something that if we lose we're going to find it much harder to uh, to win in the next uh, general uh, election campaign. And I would agree with Lotto and, and, and Keir that it's too early or it's unnecessary to have detailed policies uh, this far ahead of any likely general election. But it's not too early to be starting to work on setting out that vision that can not just bring a sufficiently large coalition together, but can infuse it with a sense of uh, excitement and possibility. Uh, the, the pandemic has strengthened the case for the sort of changes that Labour was arguing for uh, under uh, Jeremy. Uh, and I think Keir has so far focused on uh, a contrast of competence, which is absolutely fine. He's only going to win that uh, uh, argument. But to give some idea as to how Labour will build Britain back better, to use the ubiquitous slogan now, what does Labour mean by that in terms of inequality, in terms of poverty, the role of the state, uh, green uh, growth? Uh, what indeed does it mean in terms of um, deepening democracy? Uh, I think those it's not too early for the, the Labour front bench to be really trying to set out what its aims and its values are. And I think one lesson we have, and it has to be the same vision everywhere. I mean, I noticed, and, and when I criticise things that happened under Jeremy's leadership, I have to own to part of the mistakes as I was, I was there. But I noticed in 2019, we were very much talking to part of the country, what one might call for the convenient shorthand, the metropolitan progressive part of our coalition in terms of values, 
we were trying to talk to the uh, the traditional working class, I, mean, I don't like the term either, but it's for, for shorthand, in terms of pounds, shillings and pence. Like we knew we couldn't talk to them in terms of values, so we made transactional offers uh, that we hoped would get us over that hump. It didn't work, and I think in the future we, there has to be a, a set of values and a vision that can stretch across uh, our uh, coalition. Uh, but we cannot, in doing that, lose the energy and excitement that in the early part Jeremy brought to uh, the Labour uh, the Labour Party, brought new energy and new uh, voters, breaking with politics as usual. Now for Keir to talk about competence is absolutely, absolutely right. It's correct, it's important, but it's not exciting. And I think we need to move on uh, uh, from that. Now in terms of the values debate. I mean, obviously, family, fairness, hard work and decency very much have an apple pie quality uh, to them. I mean, I, I think even in the massive attacks on Corbyn, no one said he was particularly anti-family. Uh, so one has to invest these ideas with some content. And I think the same is true regarding the arguments around patriotism. Uh, I'm not one of the, those who are sort of uh, nihilistic about this argument or feel that it's illegitimate to use that term. I mean, I thought uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey was right in the leadership election to talk about progressive patriotism, and I think it's regrettable that so many people on the left, or a significant number anyway, uh, uh, really regard that as uh, an abomination. But I do think if we're to use it and use all these ideas that really in principle aren't political dividing lines because no one ever stands for indecency or laziness or um, you know or anti-family they have to be infused with a labor progressive uh, content uh, if one's image of patriotism is simply to mirror the conventional one well that's that's okay that may get you help get you some votes back someplace but a lot of people it doesn't mean anything it doesn't resonate doesn't um, you know the whole uh, flag waving means absolutely nothing to them and those are people that we can't uh, afford uh, to lose either. Now I think uh, in, in terms of the, the sort of trying to leave the culture war behind again Keir is broadly doing uh, the right sort of thing. I mean the position on Brexit or the Brexit end game that this is now um, this is now done I think that's a position that Labour should have been taking in 2017 and 2018 um, or by 2019, frankly, it was too late. That position would not have um, would not have held uh, by that stage. But I think on that, and in his apparent willingness to have a possibility uh, of a second referendum on Scottish independence, if the next Scottish parliamentary elections give a mandate for that, he is getting the Labour Party back on the right side uh, of uh, democracy, the democratic argument, letting people uh, decide and respecting the decisions. Doesn't mean Labour should be in favour of independence or even necessarily in favour of a second referendum in Scotland, but it has to allow for the possibility. And I think these are things that are opening up space by moving on from those divisions to try and allow Labour to uh, recapture uh, ground. But even that won't be enough. If Labour was to win back all the red wall seats we lost last year, all the Scottish seats we lost in 2015, we will still be short of an overall um, uh, majority in Parliament. So we have to be breaking through uh, into uh, uh, new areas uh, on the basis of a platform that can have that uh, can have that uh, uh, appeal. 
Now, if one talks about a vision, it's not something I think that any politician has ever just been able to suck out of the end of their thumb. Uh, it's not, uh, visions don't uh, arise like that, or if they do, they tend to be rather dangerous and uh, disturbing. One has to look to mass movements, to, to the empowerment of people uh, at the grassroots, uh, to actually generate the issues, the demands, the struggles uh, that start to give shape to uh, a vision. Uh, partly that means it means a much stronger trade union movement than we have uh, at the moment. I mean, a lot of the uh, red walls were lost, seats were lost to Labour politically after they were lost to the Labour movement industrially through economic change, basically, uh, a generation or more uh, earlier. And if we look at the mass movements of this century, there, there have been, I think, four on the left that have had significance of the anti-war movement, mainly around uh, Iraq, the anti-austerity movement that encompassed UK Uncut, Occupy, People's Assembly and so on, Black Lives Matter uh, and the climate change uh, and extinction uh, rebellion. Those are things that have engaged masses of people and are sort of defining the parameters of a progressive uh, agenda. Uh, it was one of the strengths of Corbynism that it came from that spirit of the mass movement outside parliament and it was a, a, a weakness that those movements tended to fade away once the leadership of the Labour Party had been won, leaving uh, Corbynism relying on parliamentary uh, work and parliamentary leadership, which frankly wasn't its strength uh, at all. But those sort of campaigns and the issues they represent are the, are the skeleton uh, of uh, a government committed to social justice uh, and uh, change. I hope that the Starmer leadership stays open uh, to those um, uh, those movements uh, and the agendas that they are uh, promoting, that it gives them appropriate policy shape. And uh, I'm a, a, a great fan of Claire Ainsley, I would say, who I worked with at the TNG for uh, many years. And any any idea that she's a, a right winger is very far of the um, very far of the mark. But I think if we can keep open to that spirit of mass struggle. If we can, I agree with Paul about it's, um, it's about these struggles challenge powerlessness. They're not the answer to it on their own. That challenging powerless needs powerlessness, needs more institutional forms at work and in the community, as well as uh, a mass movements of protest. But they do uh, also uh, generate some of the spirit of excitement, uh, which I think Labour does need, spirit of political excitement, uh, to get from 32 to 44%. Great, thanks, Andrew. Um, so, I mean, let's bring back all the speakers now. It'd be great if any of you have any responses to anything you've heard. So Andrew's talking about how do we reignite the energy of the mass movement that came up underneath Corbyn but dissipated once he became leader. Is there any chance of reigniting that spark under Starmer? What would that look like? Or if any of you want to respond to any of the points that others have made. Paul, please. Yeah, I mean, I just want to talk um, specifics around um, the place I come from, Lee. So I'm just looking at the figures. 2017 general, this is in response to, to, to what um, Andrew and Hazel have said. 2017, we got 26,000 votes and we had a 9,000 majority. 2019, 
we got 21,000 votes, sorry, 19,000 votes, and we lost. So Lee is winnable back. Um, but just just to get people's heads around what the scale of the problem is, um, many of you, many of TWT's uh, activists, uh, will be people who go out and do street stalls and this kind of thing in elections. The Labour Party held a grand total of one street stall in the entire election in Lee, my hometown. And, and it lasted 90 minutes and it was on the last Saturday before the election. Uh, there were visits, there was a visit from the Ian Lavery's battle bus. But in terms of what the party did, that, why? Because of the extreme hostility to us by the people who, who frequent and live near the town centre. So the MP said to me, we're not making me, Joe Platt, a big feature of this campaign because so many people are hostile to me personally. Now, we need to realise that that's the kind of sea that we are swimming in. Um, people would come up to us and say, I, I want to say something to you, but you won't listen to me. And we say, come on, you can say anything you want. And they said, I want to round up all the Romanian migrants and their children, slam them in a van and take them to Dover, and I don't care what happens to them next. So this is this is ethnic cleansing ideation, right? So I, I raise this because as a journalist, I hear this all the time in some of the places we need to win back and some places we'll never win. So we need to be really clear-eyed about what the problem is that we're dealing with. Now, in that time, at the same time, young people who are probably the sons and daughters of the people who don't like us, were running out of their houses. So one woman ran out in a slippers to take leaflets in December and came with us. There was just a huge generational divide. And I think that I, I, what I would welcome, the, the wisdom of the crowd here, is what, what experience do we have where it's been successful, where we're able to tip the balance so that the enthusiastic young globally connected networked people are able to sort of step out onto the street and campaign about something that they can be proud of that then begins to shift that middle ground in a town like that back towards us because i think that that is what starmer as you say andrew buys you some things he buys you kind of the respectability and the kind of professionalism thing but he do, we're facing in that town and many like it that we're up against a right-wing utopia, you know, white nationalism, QAnon, or pandemic, masks are Marxist. This is what you'll hear if you go out now. Um, what I agree with Andrew that without a vision, uh, we th there's nothing to excite people on that in those streets other than you, you, you're left replacing the kind of bread and butter offer with just an offer on competence, and that's. You know, that is my clear difference with Starmer right now. We need a vision because only visions of the future are what these visions, these ideological battles on the high street of Lee, main street of Lee, are about visions of the future. Thanks, Paul. Um, I just want to read out, I've got a couple of interesting comments from the chat. Sorry, Hazel, did you want to respond to Paul then? Yeah, um, I just want to say a couple of things. Um, so, like, firstly, um, 
I don't think that street stalls, I'm not saying you're saying this, by the way, but um, street stalls and, and I think door knocking don't actually win us elections. Um, they're good for helping get out the vote and doing some voter ID, but the idea that we actually massively convince those people on the doorstep, you know, in a couple of weeks up to the election, I think is a bit nonsense. And I think what we need to do is, is to give people the tools to have these conversations themselves. Um, and, and what I'm going to actually lean on to explain this is that... Um, in Ireland, um, where I'm from, the Republic of Ireland, we've had two huge uh, referendums that have seen a sea change in, in public opinion in the last since 2015. We had the 2015 equal marriage uh, co uh, constitutional change, and we also had um, the repeal the eighth vote. And you know, Ireland is is often seen as like this really you know Catholic um, country, like deeply, deeply Catholic country, and yet we managed to vote by a huge popular opinion um, in, in every single county in, in the whole country um, for a woman's right to choose. Um, and, and you know, that's, a, that, that, that's such a sea change that happened. And, and one of the main reasons that happened was because people had conversations and they shared their what it meant for them personally. And, and that's how things change. And if you look at, um, you know, so it, yeah, we need to be able to give young people and those people who are excited the tools of, of hope, but also have a message that's going to generate hope and a sense of hope for the for the people that are trying to convince too you know and um and then and then that's how that happens and in in if you look at the uh 2014 referendum in scotland like the labor party or narrative or the um uh you know the narrative for for being pro-union was was very tightly controlled whereas actually if you look at the kind of the campaign techniques that were employed by uh by the yes side they were you know, they allowed different groups to kind of spur, you know, come up and and deliver their message as well. And it wasn't as tightly controlled. And I think that we need to to do that as well. Um, and we need to give people the tools to con to convince their own families and things. I think that's that's important um, because it's not something that we're going to put on a leaflet. You know. Um. Thanks, Hazel. Yeah, Andrew, please come in. Yeah, I mean, just to sort of pick up on the point Paul was making about Lee, I read a very interesting letter, it's surprising to say it, uh, from Ian Rigglesworth, who used to be a Labour MP, then he became an SDP MP he was, uh, in the 70s and 80s. He was an MP on Teesside, and he wrote uh, in the letter to The Guardian in the aftermath of this most recent election that anyone who's represented these areas knows that you, there was a considerable number of working class people who held right wing or even very right wing opinions, but who nevertheless voted Labour because of prevailing class uh, uh, culture uh, in those uh, constituencies. And so well, I'm, I'm not denying that we have a, a, a problem that is getting worse, uh, it's getting sharper in, in uh, places, in industrial communities in Britain, as in much of the rest of the world. Uh, the, the there is what, what has changed is there used to be a hegemonic position of the labour movement and its organisations, which meant that even what one might call uh, again it's not a phrase I like, but more backward sections of the working class, people with more backward ideas who'd absorbed racist or chauvinistic ideas, nevertheless felt themselves within the labour framework and voting for the Tories was inconceivable. Now that hegemony has been shattered. Uh, the institutions that maintained it, trade union branches uh, linked to big workplaces, uh, have all uh, uh, have all gone. How do we? Uh, I mean, it, it would be best, of course, if we could convince everyone with racist and chauvinistic ideas to lose them. And of course, we have to do that work. We have to challenge that. 
but we also need to create a sort of labor hegemony, which will have to rest on some pillars of the old, but also new pillars as well, to actually create, I think, in many communities, uh, a sense that labor is the party. Uh, and I mean, one of the problems, I imagine, with street stalls and Lee and other, is how the constituency parties have been hollowed out over a very long period as union branches have disaffiliated, work has changed. Um, and uh, the, the Corbyn membership surge was hugely unbalanced. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's great to have members wherever they join, but I was quite surprised to learn that there were as many Labour Party members in the southeast of England where uh, at that point Labour had uh, eight parliamentary seats as there were in the northwest of England, where at that point Labour had 54 parliamentary seats. The number's gone down now. Uh, so so I, I think this work to create a sort of a, a hegemony around organisations that people can identify with, movements, including trade unions, of course, uh, is a critical part of overcoming this. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so some interesting comments in the chat here, um, which I think are pertinent to what you've just been talking about. So Warren Ellison is saying that unless we can demonstrate we can engender change at a local level, working class people won't turn out to vote. We have to walk the walk, so to speak. Uh, and also from Sarah C, the Union Jack stuff is a major turnoff for the Scottish voters that Starmer needs to win back. So some interesting points there. I don't know if you've got anything to respond to either of those comments. There's some questions as well. There's some interesting questions here from Ian Crompton. Can the experience, can, sorry, can the experience of powerlessness and the crisis of democracy that underpins this be addressed by a shift in Labour with an emphasis on democratic participation, electoral reform, including PR, to something that we've been hearing quite a bit since December? Does anyone want to come in on that? Paul, thanks. Yeah. Uh, I think that the... Andrew used this word, again, associated with, with Antonio Gramsci, hegemony. Uh, the, let's, let's call it, you know, cultural influence. Uh, and the question is, you know, can, can, can we... It comes down to, can we achieve this through what we do, through through activism. I think we have to do something more. Um, so without getting too historical, the problem that the Italian, during the rise of fascism, the problem, problem that the Italian working, working class had was that it needed to reach out to the middle class and above all to peasants who weren't hearing its message. And Gramsci, after they'd been defeated by fascism, basically coined this term hegemony because I think it's what he, what he meant by it is we, the class conscious section of the you know population, have to make a kind of offer that, that includes some concessions to the ideas of and the and the obsessions of other parts of the population. Now, I'd, I'd, and I think it's going to be it, it's going to take us. So people like TWT Momentum, uh, you know, the, the, the Socialist Campaign Group or whatever, to say we need to make an offer to the places in the red wall that we need to win that actually feels to us like a concession and i think it's going to be a bigger concession than using the using the union jack um though i don't know what it is um i just add one thing to, to what andrew said as well it's worse than the idea that the, the labor movement has collapsed 
um, in, in places, i.e. the industrial wing of the labour movement. It's worse than that. I, I've got friends in the town I come from, and basically there is no centre. Um, in the sense that the labour activism is the soft left and, and momentum, and conservatism doesn't really exist. What exists is the remnants of UKIP and the Brexit Party and the BMP. Uh, and my friends describe sitting in working men's clubs. In one corner is the left. In the other end of the room are fascists, basically. And, and the problem is they are radical. So that it's not like they are the old conservative strike breaking, you know, cap doffing, yet, you know, good on your, your honour type people who our father's generation were up against, strike breakers. It's people who think they are, in a way, revolutionaries. And you will hear it said, you know, when's the civil war coming? When's the race war coming? This is, this is, no, of course, these people are not a majority by any sense. They're an absolutely tiny minority. But the, the struggle for hegemony for, for progressive ideas has to understand that you, we're up against an extreme form of right-wing uh, populism. Uh, and we don't seem to have come up with an answer to it. Um, so, and I think, in other words, to answer the question, it's it's not just going to be about campaigning around things that, that are motherhood and apple pie. It's actually about taking difficult issues into the public space. Um, I think we're very, very ill-equipped for doing that. Um, and I, I, for exactly the reasons that, that both of the other speakers have said about, about how slimmed down our operation is in the places we need to win. Thanks for that, Paul. Um, so, I mean, there's an Sorry, Hazel, did you want to come in on that, please? Thanks. Yeah, um, I was going to say, I think that we're in danger sometimes of thinking that this is a uniquely, like, British problem when actually, um, you know, the same thing is happening um, across most of the Western world. It's also happening in, in the States and and it's happening, you know, even in countries like Sweden, where the Swedish Democrats um, are a major challenge for um, for in the next election. Um, and Sweden is one of the probably most socially progressive countries in, in the world. So, um, you know, I, I and kind of resonating back on what Andrew said, like, I don't think, for example, that um, I think for Donald Trump, for example, won the US election, not because he was racist and sexist, but despite the fact that he was, um, because people cared more about um, the sense of hope that he he represented for them in terms of their in terms of their community than, than they were worried about any of the more negative aspects to him. You know, and I think we have to kind of like divide that off. There are, and I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't people who are sexist and racist and vote for Trump for those reasons. Of course there are, but we have to talk about the voters that we want to win over. Um, and people's, people will prioritize certain things, you know, and, um, and the number one thing that they'll most of the time prioritize is, is economics in the sense that like their jobs and, 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 and their future and their ability to, to, to pay their way through, through life, you know, and, um, and that has to be the number one thing that, that we, that we try and try and address. And I don't think that things, uh, things can fall apart really quickly, but they can also be built really quickly as well. You know, like Labour got its highest ever election results in a Westminster election in Scotland in 2010, and then got near annihilated in 2015, you know? Um, and, and so, yeah, like, I, I don't think that there's a foregone conclusion of, oh, well, you know, like the Tories have got like a, such a huge vote. Of, there's no way we could possibly ever win the next election. Like, we just have to start, like, how are we building the foundations for how we are going to win the next election? And what are we actually prioritizing? Because we can't, we're not going to, we can run through every single problem and every single variable for why people are voting the way they vote. But actually, we have to get realistic and, and appeal to the most important ones. Um, 
and 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 that is more people's economic future. I mean, there's a reason why the UK maybe was ahead of other countries in Western Europe, and that's because income inequality in the UK grew and is, is bigger than any other country in Europe. And that happened when we had a Labour government. Um, and and there is a there is a link, you know, um, but you know, causation between income inequality and and, and and a sense of you know resources and people turning and leaving kind of like a racist agenda, you know, like the rise of xenophobia in the country. It uh, hasn't happened out of anywhere. Like the Brexit vote is directly linked, I think, to deindustrialization of 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 the of the British economy. Um and and, and the manufacturing base and the erosion of that. And the Labour Party, I think, needs to prioritize talking about that first, you know? Um and we can do that. There are there are the the routes to do that, and it's not a foregone conclusion that we would lose. But that's the thing I think we have to start prioritizing and talking about all the time, because the reality is most voters don't sit there and do a comparative analysis of your manifesto versus every other political party's manifesto at all. Right? You get to have maybe you know your strap line for your manifesto and a few fledgling campaigns to talk about that and or policies to talk about that that to get your message across. Sorry. <laughs> Um, but that's what we need to start thinking about. Like, what is that message, and what and what is that hope? Thanks, Hazel. Um, yeah. So, Andrew, yes, yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, it's just to take up on on pick up on Hazel's point because Scotland is a very sobering example. I mean, I mean, the fact that people vote SNP is vastly more benign than voting conservative in in England uh, or let alone Brexit party or anything for sure but but we had um, a situation and this is something I got wrong and I think generally most of us involved with the Corbyn team got wrong I believed that it that the problems in Scotland that Labour had were mainly attributed to new Labour and a particularly mediocre succession of new Labour leaders and that once Labour at a British level was offering a radical um, uh, option uh, again, we would start to win that ground back. And it, it, didn't, it didn't happen. There'd been a shift, and you could see it coming in the referendum in, in Scotland when, although Scotland voted to remain um, in the UK, in Glasgow, North uh, Lanarkshire, Dundee, it voted for independence, core working class areas. And even in 2017, our uptick in the vote in Scotland for Labour was very anemic indeed compared to England and Wales. So there is a, a danger there that, you know, once people shift their orientation to believing in the Scottish case, a section, a significant section of working class people, that the social aspirations can be better achieved, you know, through independence and so on. Getting that back is much more difficult, certainly when I than I thought, and I, my fear is that the same problem could apply in a in a much more much less benign way in red wall seats. That once people have have made this this shift, and I think you know the answer is that there's lots of interesting questions uh, are coming uh, through. But this is why I, I said I think Keir Starmer he needs to invest some of these slogans like patriotism and you know fairness with a concrete. La a labor essence uh, to, to to win back at least some of the or fragment or confuse the people who are sitting in one corner of Paul's working men's club the the far rightist now some of those are probably 
never going to be any uh, one back at all. But one has to have an uh, have a narrative that can head off them expanding their their reach. And uh, I'm not sure that um, that where we are yet is it. I mean, it's it's been a start in the in, in the right direction. I mean, one of the questions been asked is: Is constructive opposition a, a good goal? Well, I, I don't want to criticise at all. Basically, how Keir has handled the pandemic. I, mean, I think it's a unique situation and he had to uh, find a tone uh, and the government has given a lot of opportunities with his blund with, with their blundering for him to score points. But he does need, he, he will need to move on. It's not going to be enough. Constructive opposition isn't uh, enough. I mean, if you look at the template, Labour served uh, un under Churchill, but at the same time they were building the space, the vision, for a radical alternative that, of course, Churchill himself was never going to deliver, and um, so I think, uh, you know, I think Labour will need to move beyond the constructive opposition phase pretty soon if it is to have any chance of building a, a a movement that can get the people in Scotland who've left Labour to actually take a second look, um, you know, because without without them doing that in Scotland. Uh, there won't be a Labour majority government next time. I and mean, that's almost inconceivable, I'm, I'm afraid. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so I think we've got an interesting question here in the chat, especially as we've been talking a little bit about what is essentially sort of a radicalisation of the Republican Party, who arguably have absorbed and co-opted sort of the Tea Party movement demands, uh, Tory government now, who arguably are uh, absorbing and adopting a lot of the positions of Britain first. Um, we have radical views that aren't destructive. Uh, how do we reconcile having radical views, like wanting a post-work society, which I think was mentioned earlier, with campaigning for what looks like will be a fairly moderate Labour government? I mean, this is something that a lot of Labour members are really grappling with at the moment. Uh, and we know there's a real danger of people leaving. What are people's thoughts? Well, I think, um, I don't know who to attribute it to, but um, someone, uh, said that or made the comment that um, the Tories do a very good job of selling conservative ideas and making them look radical and uh, and, and we do sometimes the opposite. Um, I mean, yeah, like the Labour Party, I think we, we just, we need to have more of a, like, more of a sense of an hour to talk to people about. Like we can't just be reactive all the time. I think too often in the last parliament, we were just reacting on the spot um, individually. We weren't building a long-term case for where we were trying to take people. You know, I mean, to lean back on what we said about Scotland, like that didn't just happen overnight. Like, I think if you look at the Scottish vote for independence, you can break it down in two ways, right? There was always about a 20% support for independence. For those people, independence is the ends, right? They just want independence, nationalists. Then you had another 25% of the vote that got added to that. And those are people who want to live in a so more socially just Scotland, right? And they were just a traditional voter base. And a lot of them actually um, are, uh, you know, Irish, like uh, former Irish communities, um, communities of Irish immigrants that live in Scotland, um, who, who like the, the Scottish Catholic vote, who, who moved over. And I don't think for them, uh, independence was the was the end for them independence was the means it became the vehicle for which they would they would get this delivered and now the problem that Scottish Labour has is that those people have become so convinced that the only way to achieve that is through uh, is through independence. But it's it's still not the ends that they're looking for, you know. And if we wanted to win back some of the vote, then we have to be able to just differentiate between that percentage and, and 
between the two groups. Um, I think the only way that Labour, by the way, is going to be, have a, any chance of winning back in Scotland is if we get into government in Westminster first and show that those things can be achieved through that. I think if that doesn't happen, if that step doesn't happen that way, then I, I do think Scotland probably is lost. Um, but, you know, uh, but there's all those, there's loads of different variables in that, you know, Scotland has constitutionally always been its own country and its own mindset. Um, and, and, and that, that does make a difference. There's a reason why, you know, for example, Liverpool hasn't declared independence yet, um, or, or Manchester or parts of different boroughs of London, you know, they don't have historically have that context, which is also important. Um, um, and I think we we need to understand the drivers behind why people are doing that, you know, and that's coming back to the difference between, yeah, like there are people who are in the Tory party who are having messages that resonate with, with the likes of Britain first. But, you know, I used to work for an anti-fascist organization and sometimes you'd have these massive EDL marches, right? And um, I remember once, and actually not just once, but on a few occasions, the EDL would turn up to some places to fight the anti-fascist movement, no anti-fascists would have turned up and they'd end up fighting each other, you know? Um, and actually you have to be able to differentiate between the people uh, like Stephen Yaxley and the people who are just kind of bored and don't have a sense of purpose and are just kind of going along with the crowd. And we can't just, you know, wipe everyone off with the same slate or or think that there are big important differences between between the two. There are the people in UKIP who, who actually sell this, you know, like disgusting narratives. And, they're the, and then there are people who, who get convinced that that's that's the means, you know, like, um, and we need to be intelligent enough to to be able to to differentiate them and, and have a message for the ones that we know that we can win back, you know, like like that's the, there's a difference. There are people who are sexist and xenophobic who vote for the Tories, and there are people who vote for the Tories despite the fact that there is a, they're sexist and xenophobic, and who which ones are we trying to talk to? Um, and we need to be able to have a message for them, and we need to be able to have a, and our job is to find a more hopeful vehicle for them to achieve the country they want to live in than than that's been provided by the opposition, but that that we have to understand the differences between between the, the groups that exist within them you know they might all be voting the same way that doesn't that doesn't mean they're all thinking the same way or they're all do, voting the same way for the same reason thanks hazel yes please paul come in uh yeah i think it's worth saying that um the way that starmer's team think about this is I, I, something that uh that I, at this level i agree with policies aren't what's going to win the election um, what is going to win the election is a simple narrative, a simple story for people sign up to. Um, now, however, I think it's fairly clear that if you want to look for where is policy going to be formed under Starmer, it is around, I mean, the, the, the people who are influential are Claire Ainsley herself uh, with her book. It's worth reading. Uh, I don't agree with the analysis in it, but I think I think there's interesting stuff in it. Uh, Jonathan Rutherford uh, from Sonings magazine, and then the people around the foundational economy, the Manchester Business School, lefties. Um, that's where, where I think they're going to kind of be. I think there's an in interesting debate for us who've supported the new Green New Deal for how, how do we frame fighting for the Green New Deal in that context. Um, but to answer the question on radical policies, I think what we came up against in 2019, apart from Brexit, was the question of social conservatism in the small towns, the question of Scotland, and then there's a third thing. And I came up, this hit me, I was I was canvassing in the former area where, where Longbridge used to be the car factory, North, Birmingham Northfield. And so many people said to me, well, they, they kind of intimated that what they feared was change. 
But even though they were desperate for some uh, you know, you know, an improvement in you know, what did they not like, you know, parking, what else don't they like, uh, crime, uh, antisocial behaviour, uh, lots of things they don't like. But the moment you say to them, well, we got, you know, if, if you say to them, well, we can, we can bring a big change to your life, they said, oh, no, you know, in, implicitly, no, that scares me. And I think that we haven't properly understood how deeply neoliberalism has inculcated the sense of fatalism. Um, Wilhelm Reich, the, uh, the Marxist um, psychologist in the 1930s, called this fear of freedom. Uh, people want freedom, but when they see it offered, they kind of recoil. Um, now, I think the art of the policy formation is going to be solving that problem. Actually, there is... In the, in the arsenal of social democracy, um, and actually, uh, you know, in the arsenal of British social democracy as well, as well as international, there is this concept of the maximum and minimum programme. Uh, also, my old Trotskyist friends would not like that. You know, they, they, they didn't want something better than that. But I'm quite happy for us to spell out a minimum programme that, you know, we're trying to... to to create an electoral coalition around, and a maximum program that does include, for me, things like uh, shorter working week, uh, not just decarbonisation, but uh, you know, post-growth. We, on that wing of the party, you know, can't think that we're going to get that in, in one leap in, in, by 2024. Winning the election would open up a space to debate things like the future of work, the future of automation, etc. But I, I think that, um, so I'd be very happy if we were to conceive of the minimum that we're, at, we're offering. But uh, coming back to the whole theme, that minimum has got to be inspiring. It's got to, I know people hated the slogan, real change. The weirdest thing is it tested very well in the, um, that's why they adopted it. As, as I, my, Andrew, you might have a different view on this, but I, I that's why it was adopted. The problem is, You've got to concretize real change into people's lives. Uh, I'm not suggesting, by the way, we readopt it. It's just that that's really what we're fighting for. Andrew, please, do you want to come back on that? Uh, yeah, Paul, just on that last point, Paul raised. Yes, it did poll very well, and I think it shows the limitations of um, being driven by polling <laughs> alone. I'm not saying it has no way. But for the many, not the few, it was a much better slogan. And with the benefit of hindsight, we should have stuck with it. Uh, people knew what it meant. We don't have to be new every two years, frankly. Um, the other point I just wanted to make is I don't think it should be fatalism to come back to the question that was asked about the next been a moderate Labour government. If I mean, clearly, Keir Starmer is not Jeremy Corbyn, and he, he won't lead, in my view, a government that is as radical uh, as a Corbyn McDonnell government would have been. I think that's that's just a fact. Um, however, we shouldn't be fatalistic about the nature of the next Labour government. We have to get that next Labour government. It will be better than the Tories. That is the, the bare minimum baseline. But people can shape this for themselves. If we have the sort of mass movements developing around the sort of issues I'd mentioned earlier, if we are... You know, this vision, we can't wait for Keir Starmer alone to, you know, as I said, suck a vision out the end of his thumb. It needs to come from people's own struggles and activities. And if we have, I mean, in the old days, I mean, much funny when I was 
young, uh, you know, the, 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 you'd be looking for strike action, industrial action, industrial militancy would contextualize to a large extent what a Labour government might uh, be doing. But that's not likely to be the case uh, for Keir Starmer. But if, we, if people are building from the bottom up movements that are addressing inequality, that are addressing poverty, that are addressing racism and climate change, that will contextualise, because it, it, it is wrong to see, I don't think Keir Starmer is Tony Blair, he's not Jeremy Corbyn, he's not Tony Blair either, who is consciously setting himself against the demands of the left at a time when the left have been historically defeated on a world scale, so it's easy for him to do, but consciously working, cutting against that and consciously almost disengaging from his own party and its traditions. If we, Keir Starmer is not in my reading like that, and therefore if we have a context of basically popular agitation and militancy, that as much as Claire Ainsley, who I admire, that will shape the nature of a, a Labour government. Thanks, Andrew. Um, there's an interesting question here from Liam Miller, which I think chimes with what you've just been talking about, um, about how do we affect change from the bottom up. Um, Liam asks, what do those institutions that uphold progressive labour movement hegemony look like? On what sort of timescale can they be established? Any responses to that from Liam? Paul? Yeah, please. Yeah, okay. Um, I think it's, it's bearing in mind the, the political scale of some of, of, of some of the places we're talking about is small. So what would a movement look like? It looks like a few hundred people turning out to do something over several months. It's not, I mean, BLM, where I, I live in South London. Uh, the, the Vauxhall demonstration was on my doorstep. I, it, I've been involved in anti-racist politics in this area for 30 years. It was the biggest black demonstration I've ever seen. So, you know, so, so for example, in 1995, when the police killed somebody, a black man, we had a thousand people. We couldn't even stop the traffic. And this was 30,000 people. But in, in a place, and it's not even the small towns, it's, it's the edges of, of big cities as well. Those movements will look it, it, they look quite small scale. Example, uh, Partisan. Partisan's a social centre in Salford. Uh, it's run by sort of autonomous anarchist left, Labour affiliated. It's an absolute tip. You know, it's it's a kind of falling down building. It has raves. Um, it does. It's a place where people can organise. The small town I come from hasn't even got anywhere like that. And I think that we we should think very carefully about place you remember andrew uh, in the 80s when the mass unemployment the labor movement set up unemployed centers in quite a lot of towns and this was something that uh, the gmb at one point we're talking about doing but i think it fell by the wayside because of general secretary change uh centers i think it's rather than what they do the fact that there is a place and a space is is going to be really important but bear in mind say again Yes, the fascists are tiny, but as soon as we set those places up, that's that will be the focus of their attention, because it's hegemony only means influence. It just means there's a place to go. There's a there's a billboard on the door. You know, again, Sony, because of the Joe Cox situation in parts of Northern England, uh, MPs don't put advertise where their offices are. Um, so, we, I think space 
And then what you do is you respond to what whatever's going on. It could be employment. I think it is going to be unemployment in the next few years. I think it could be uh, domestic violence is a huge issue in some of the places we're talking about. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it it's place to organize from and what you organize can can change. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Andrew, do you want to come in on that? Uh, well, yeah, because I think the questioner was um, uh, re reacting to something I'd, I'd said about the re-establishment of uh, the sort of hegemony that Labour had in generations past in industrial areas. That again, that very much grew out of work uh, and the organised, I mean, these places, it was organised Labour that held these places. The Labour Party was just a part of that, uh, really. And I agree with what Paul has just said, and I also think there is no easy answer to the question. Yes, trade unions are still there, but it's not got the weight it had in the past. Trade unions do need to be strengthened. I mean, one of the uh, silver linings in this enormous coronavirus-shaped cloud has been there's been a, a new understanding of the importance of trade unions, even at the level of a Tory government is having to sort of address unions in a new way. And I think more people are understanding the need to be in unions. Will that re-establish the hegemony of old? No, or at least not, not in any of the timescales we're talking about. We also need to look about how we can intervene in the communities um, reaching out beyond work. Now, Unite My Union set up a community membership scheme a few years ago. Anyone who's not in work for whatever reason uh, can join. It's done reasonably well, but it's not it's not done well enough. I mean, it's not it, its presence is still slight in many communities, but it's a start. It's opening up the movement to people who aren't uh, uh, in uh, in work. The Labour Party appointed community organisers rather controversially under uh, under Jeremy. Now, there's a sort of argument as to what difference they made one way or another in the 2019 election. Probably it wasn't a great deal one way or another. But in terms of trying to turn the Labour movement into engaging with the campaigns that, that grow from the bottom up, and it's slightly passing the buck in answer to the question. But really, people down below, they will shape the organisations that, uh, that, that create the sort of culture, uh, the cultural influence that Paul, as Paul puts it. Uh, and, you know, one can't from on high say what they are going to be, how they are going to emerge. They will emerge from the soil of a crisis-ridden society. Britain has now been in a crisis, really, for more than 10 years. Uh, when people talk about us getting back to the level of 2019 in terms of wages and living standards in a couple of years' time, they really mean getting back to the level of 2008, because we had that huge, you know, period of stagnation. We're now looking at this perfect storm, second wave of coronavirus, uh, a Brexit without a trade deal. You know that leak in the in the sun a few weeks ago, saying "army on the streets" uh, and and so on. These generate the need for people to organise and coalesce uh, around uh, alternatives. And as for the timescale on what, which this happens, I mean, um, uh, it's probably very slow that it happens all at once uh, in a way you know there's an accumulation uh, and then you know suddenly you realize you're uh, you're there i mean i reflect on the anti-war movement of 2002 to 2004 5 
enormous demonstrations suddenly in, in communities all over the country, some that never had demonstrations before, suddenly uh, galvanized by that issue. And, and that really was inspiring and um, exciting at the time. Not successful enough, but it certainly changed the weather. So, um, so I, I think one can't sit here and be prescriptive about what those organizations will be or when they will emerge. One can only be indicative as to the process and the issues. Um, Hazel, please. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, there are loads of exciting new movements that are coming forward, but I think, you know, like actions don't a movement make. Um, and, you know, yes, there's been lots of, uh, of, of protests, for example, but how that actually gets carried forward, how does that translate into building a community and a sense of community and identity around that issue that can withstand just, you know, the initial outburst of energy um, is important if we want to look at how we can translate that into actual votes come election time. Um, and I think that, you know, yes, like there, there are new movements, like there's one in Scotland, um, but Living Rent, and um, our, our union has worked closely with them in Glasgow, actually. Um, and, but I want to come back to the whole issue about new institutions. I mean, we really need to just look about the ones that we actually, you know, are, are, already have which is the trade union movement and the reality is that you know there were less strikes that took place after 2008 than there were um le leading up to that um and the trade union movement you know the reality is that most members uh of trade unions will swap trade union membership between say the big three for example unison unite and gmb in the same way that they'll swap internet provider because we've lost what that meaning is to be a member of a trade union in lots of places. It's like an insurance policy that people hold. Um, and that's because the trade union movement has, you know, we all bought into a massive servicing model of, of organizing. And uh, and a long time ago, like, you know, the trade union movement was the, was, was the movement that went out and educated people. And when I say education, I think it's this kind of idea that, you know, well, education will just solve all these problems and, and everything else. And actually, well, you know, just because we pushed everyone through higher education isn't going to make, you know, that's not going to solve these issues. Like there's like, it's about getting good paying, paying jobs. And what are the unions actually doing to, to deliver a lot of that? Like, um, it'll be in, like the unions have had a bit of a bounce of membership through COVID, but we'll see how long that lasts when we're going to enter a massive unemployment situation. And I think our unions need to get more radical, you know, um, like we, we did have, we were a sense of community, like your trade union was your community and you did listen to, to people in your union. They did have those links and they don't really have them anymore. Um, and, and we need to focus on, on building that back up because the Labour Party would have done a lot better if the trade unions could have gotten all their members to just vote Labour uh, in the last election or in the next election. And we, we can't. The reality is that the majority of our, like not all of our members, a huge, huge bulk of our members are actually voting Tory. You know why is that happening and um and sometimes we look for the next new fix the next new thing and actually maybe we need to go back to basics and and re-establish those relationships on from the shop floor up um and give people a sense of identity because like i think i said earlier and and i really stand by this you don't earn the right to tell vote to tell trade union members how to vote if you haven't for example sorted out the, the broken kettle in the canteen or you haven't sorted out their pay deal or or, or, or a majority of other different things 
Um, but what is interesting is how we can get those institutions to work together. So in GMB in Glasgow, our refuse workers have teamed up with Living Rent to run a campaign about the local community and, and the, 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 the state of the streets in Glasgow, instead of, instead of taking the tensions away from the two of them and combining those two different movements. I think that's something that's powerful and that's something that we should see more of. But ultimately, I think trade unions need to focus on their job, which is workers in the workplace and using that as a building block. And then maybe reaching out past that after they've done that to other organizations and how can we how can we work across organizations instead of all the organizations that we do have trying to do a million different things all at the same time that was great thanks hazel um okay so one last final question i think we've got time for um it's quite a big one do the panel think labor can win power on its own Andrew, do you want to come in first? Well, it's, it's a huge stretch, to be honest. I think Hazel earlier put her finger on the root of the dilemma that in Scotland, politics can't be reframed or working class left wing can't be reframed until there is a Labour government in Westminster doing the sort of good things that people in Scotland, as in England and Wales, want. Yet, on the other hand, getting to that point without winning not even going to go back to 41 seats, but say getting back to 21 uh, Labour seats in Scotland, well, getting to an overall majority is very, very difficult. I mean, we are three or four years away from that election, so there's no need to be too uh, gloomy uh, about it. But um, I don't think Labour should be afraid of the possibility of having to uh, govern in, with some sort of arrangement with the SNP. Um, Liberal Democrats would be a different matter altogether. I certainly wouldn't advocate that uh, at all. Um, but uh, I think we have to work for uh, a Labour uh, a Labour majority government. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I thought even even before the last election that we had to be open to an alliance with the some arrangement with the SNP. Had we been in a position to not. Because even if we'd had a small majority, frankly, I would rather have re relied on an agreement with the SNP than an agreement with the far right of the PLP, uh, which would have been very uh, unstable and you'd been living from vote to vote. So it'll be a different situation. We've got to go for it. Um, but we also have to be realistic, I think, that without uh, a change in Scotland, we're looking at winning a Labour majority in England uh, and Wales. Uh, on its own, and that has happened, but doesn't happen very often. Thanks, Andrew. Does anyone else have any thoughts on that, Paul? I mean, I think um, I think it probably I think it maybe even if it could, I would have wanted to, um, because the scale of change we want to be able to you know enact in Britain. Needs so when we talk about scrapping neoliberalism and changing to something completely different. If you think about the way the 1945 government pushed in a Keynesian, you know, or, you know a kind of oh, took the wartime economy and turned it into a peacetime Keynesian state capitalist economy, that effectively created a two party consensus around the future. And I mean, we owe it to next generation to at least create a consensus around zero carbon and i think that so 
although you know i wouldn't fetishize trying to form a government with the lib dems i would certainly say we shouldn't be frightened of a government that has the greens applied smp uh as natural partners for it and i would actively seek uh, a power offer uh whether we you know however many of the seats we claw back that tries to engage them in a transformative uh thing for united kingdom the obstacles to to winning on our own though are are, are absolutely huge and i would agree with uh, andrew that you know that we'd have to be prepared for a supply and confidence or whatever the only uh, point i would say is that uh and i'm sorry to leave this until the end because we might disagree with it is that i don't see the liberal liberalism as the main enemy i see neoliberal uh economics as the problem but the main problem for us is authoritarian nationalist, white nationalist, racist, misogynist reaction. Um, and I think that um, all over the world, you are seeing some liberal parties now re come to the conclusion that they, the time has now come to decide which side they're on uh, against the Trumps, against the AFD in Germany. And so, you know, I'm not sure the Lib Dems will revive actually, but if they don't, you know, this is the final heretical thought. Labour needs to be able to include liberals. It needs to be able to small L liberals. There needs to be, we might not agree with them, but but they've got to be somewhere. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Hazel, do you have any final points on that? Um. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think it'd be very difficult for Labour to get into 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 a majority from from where it is at the moment. Um, do you think it can win power on its own? I don't think that's just about in terms. Of, I didn't wouldn't interpret that question as being just about the other political parties in the political system. Actually, like you know, I don't think you can have a strong Labour Party without a strong Labour movement, and I don't think you can have the other one the other way around either. Um, and and so in that in that sense, I don't think it can on its own at all. You know, I think it's you know you might there are going to be people who are tuning in now who aren't members of the Labour Party, um, and actually Labour still needs them to help in some way as well, which is just by going into those communities and, and building a sense of community in a way that we can actually talk and have a, a safe place for people to to have these conversations about Labour. You know, give people the tools to talk about the kind of wired narrative, like Paul said. Like the thing we've all said, what is the story that we want to tell people, you know, and what is that kind of brighter future? And people might have different interpretations of how, how to get there. But like if that's the push factor, then I think, you know, Labour can 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 win in on that. Um, I Mathematically, I don't think I think they'll have to have some sort of agreement with the SNP. But here is the is the difficulty, you know, in 2015 at Miliband, uh, the Tories like whipped up fear uh, about in 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 Middle England about oh, oh these you know about the Scottish voters in the SNP, um, and used that to kind of generate like a, a massive vote for for the Tories in England. When actually you know uh, that's the kind of double obstacle we're going to have to come over. You know how do we set up British vision and also not uh alienate lots of voters in scotland or alienate the snp for example you know how do we are we going to lose seats uh when you know to tories because there are voters who are worried about the fact that we might go into coalition with the snp because we have you know we were existing in this kind of xenophobic um environment like that's a i don't actually know what the answer is to that but it is something that we're going to have to come up against i would 100 percent vote for a coalition that involved the snp um because I think it's about pushing things in the, in the, in the right direction. Um, and there's certainly, 
you know less toxic than uh than the, than the tories are you know um but we will have to build a coalition how are we going to convince green voters to still vote for the Labour Party in in, in in some key constituencies, you know? Um, are we going to have electoral coalitions? I don't know. Like, um, I don't think Labour can win it on its own. I think it's going to take a huge, huge thing. But the, the win isn't just the Labour Party. The win is a better country for us all to live in. And maybe there are different vehicles to deliver that. But we need to try and unite them as much as, as, much as possible. It's about building a consensus, I think, for change, you know? And then Labour's job is to capitalise on that and convince people that it's the best vehicle through which to deliver it. Great, thanks Hazel. Well, that's a relatively hopeful note to finish on, which is nice. Um, thank you so much to our brilliant speakers today, Andrew, Hazel and Paul. Thank you to everyone who's attended today. Um, just a couple of things. To continue the discussion today, uh, we've set up a dedicated space on our community forum. If you've already set up your account, you can click on this link to the chat, uh, sorry, the click on the link in the chat to find a relevant discussion thread to this event. If you're registered for the festival, check your email for your sign-up link to the form. Finally, another plug, if you enjoyed this session and the festival and would like to help us sustain our ongoing work, please consider supporting us at theworldtransformed.org forward slash support. Thanks to everyone who joined us today. Take care. Bye. View the full TWT20 programme and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.